This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can sign up to receive stickers or coffee mugs, depending on how much cold, hard cash you're willing to shell out. George Orwell said it best. He said, when you write what you want to say as clearly and succinctly as possible, then that's your style. Russia today which is more or less a normal country with some big problems. And they wanted those technologies, those tie-ups, to fix their own sectors. And they were blocked by the West. I mean, the West has made some horrible uh, policy mistakes and been very exclusive uh, when it comes to cooperating with Russia. And there's a disused nuclear power station. And they organized a massive rave. 10,000 people turned up. folks, welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is the show where I talk to movers, I talk to shakers, and they're all, they're, they're all involved in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. You've heard that before. I'm switching up the music for this podcast episode because I found some wonderful guitar renditions of popular Soviet cartoons, which you may have noticed I use on this show, by a YouTuber named Alexander Kuzminich, who has shared his recordings under the Creative Commons license on YouTube. Check the description of this podcast episode for a hyperlink to all his music. My guest on today's show is Ben Aris, the editor-in-chief of BNE IntelliNews, a media outlet that he pioneered that reports on business news and data from emerging markets. Ben spent many years as a foreign correspondent in Eastern Europe, and he's been covering Russia since 1993. I turned 11 years old that year, and he's had stints in the Baltics and Central Asia. Before he co-founded BNE, he was a former Moscow bureau chief for the Daily Telegraph, he was also a contributing editor at The Banker and Euromoney for a decade. And he was kind enough to come on this show, The Russia Guy, to talk about Western sanctions against Russia, Moscow's troubled relationship with Berlin these days, and about his long, storied career in journalism. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. Berlin, and so I thought this might be a, a germane question. I wanted to know, do you think that Navalny's poisoning will derail the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? And for, for people that are unfamiliar with that pipeline, do you think it's the, the devious instrument of, of like energy warfare that some people in the West describe it as when talking about Nord Stream 2? What do you, what's your opinion there? No, I don't think it will derail the pipeline's completion for, for several reasons. Partly, I mean, Merkel has said that it's an economic project, not a political project. It is political in so much as what it does is it cuts Ukraine out of the loop. And from Germany's perspective, it's going to get direct access to the Yamal gas fields. But for a German point of view, it's also political in so much as the Ukrainian transit route has been a problem in so much as the Russians have turned the gas off there. And we've been following that story closely since, since it came up. I had uh, actually lunch with um, Shavalov, where we talked specifically about this. And he said, no, look, it was force majeure. The Ukrainians didn't pay their bill. And so we cut them off. And that's completely normal. And I asked him, like, well, why didn't you call Merkel and tell him that you're about to cut Europe off? And he said, we didn't need to, which I was a bit shocked at. 
because obviously the political ramifications of that. So what Germany is looking at there is A, getting cheaper gas and energy is a key part of anyone's national security and getting cheaper energy is also extremely important. And so that's the big motivator for her. But also the security it brings in so much as you take that very unstable link out and the relationships between Russia and Ukraine are awful. And to leave that link in for Germany is an energy security issue because of these constant fights. Now, you could argue, and I think everyone is, is that this is like oppression of the Ukrainian and it's a, it's a threat by Russia. At B&E, we, we write about business. So we tend to take a pure business perspective. And I must say, from the business and economics perspective, it makes total sense. People say it's going to make Europe more dependent on Russian gas, but that's simply not true. The amount of gas that will arrive in Europe will be exactly the same if it goes through Druzhba, through Ukraine, or if it goes through Nord Stream 2. You could argue Nord Stream 2 is a phenomenal waste of money, 50 whatever it is, billion dollars, that you didn't need to build it because there's plenty of capacity through Ukraine. That's true. But at the end of the day, uh, it's Russian's gas. They can do what they want. And if they want to build a pipeline that goes directly to Germany because they think that's a better deal for them, if they want to punish Ukraine for the terrible relationships, that's, again, their prerogative. Um, you could say the Ukraine should have had a good relationship with Russia. And you could answer that by saying like it never did have a good relationship with Russia. It's not going to have a good relationship with Russia. And if that's the case, then it actually does make sense, you know, for the stability. Because Russia has always been priding itself on being a reliable supplier of gas. I mean, it's been selling this gas during Soviet times, during the Cold War era. And the Druzhba pipeline's been going for, since whenever it was in the 60s. Um, I think the problems are specifically with Ukraine and the terrible relationships they've fallen into. As for the German side, um, it was surprising that Merkel hinted that she would link Navalny's case to Nord Stream 2. This was her getting the big guns out. And that was a shocker. Um, and I think what it says is that she is very, very pissed off with what's going on and with the Kremlin and that she's had enough and that she's going to hold Russia to account. What it means in practice, I don't think the pipeline will be cancelled. It'll just be suspended indefinitely. And I'm pretty certain that it'll be completed sometime in the future when everyone calms down again, when we sort of move on, when Navalny goes home. Um, but it, it's been an interesting episode. I mean, a very dramatic one too. Um, and it testifies to, you know, the difficult relationships, particularly Germany has with Russia. And Germany has some of the best relationships with Russia in Europe. They have a, Merkel and Putin have an excellent working relationship. And that's been really bollocked up by this whole Navalny story. Is that a, a temporary bollocksing up or is it is is that something permanent? D Dmitry Trenin had a, had like kind of a alarmist piece in Carnegie the other day where he was arguing that he seems to think that the that Nord Stream 2 is dead and that this sort of heralds the end of the special relationship between Berlin and Moscow that we've, we've sort of seen since the Gorbachev era. The special relationship ended already in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. And I can tell you from talking to the diplomats, particularly here in Berlin, that they were shocked. They were really shocked that Putin would do that. And they said, look, we always had prickly relationships with Russia. It's a difficult place to deal with. You know, it's a big country and arrogant. It has its own agenda. And, you know, it's unsettling for us for all the historical reasons. 
But they were really shocked by that. I mean, it really changed things fundamentally. And ever since then, the relationships have been bad and awkward. And actually, Merkel's been trying to sort of hammer out some sort of pragmatic um, relationship with Russia since. So when she sees Putin, there's, there's two parts to their conversations. One is all the political problems like Donbass and uh, Crimea and, and Navalny and, and uh, human rights in general. And the other part is business, you know, the BMW factory in Kaliningrad, Siemens turbine business in, in Russia in general. And there they do a lot of business and actually have an understanding. And so they have this sort of pragmatic working relationship where they sort of hold their nose over the politics and try and make the, the business side work. I don't think it's fundamentally changed anything. It certainly was a, a blip, a spike in poor relationships. I think going forwards is going to be a difficult. And the, the real problem is that Merkel's going. She's going to leave within two years' time. And she's going to be followed by someone who's not as on top of the game as as Merkel is. I mean, she really gets on well with Putin. I mean, they don't like each other personally, but they, they really do function well together on a working basis. And I don't see the next German leader being um, unlikely to be as successful as she is in managing Putin because he, he respects her. I mean, she can manage him. Uh, and so I think, you know, it's part of the general deterioration between East and West, the sort of emergence of a new Cold War or however you want to frame it. Um, and this is going to be an ongoing problem for, for Europe, you know, what to do about Russia. But, you know, the old Bismarck quote is what he was asked, what's the secret of politics? And he said, make a good deal with Russia. Um, I think that still stands, but nobody's been able to find sort of terms of a deal that actually works. I could change the gears. I wanted you to know, how did you get into journalism at the start? And what drew you to Russia specifically? I fell into it. Um, it was <laughs> not my plan. I mean, I should say that my uh, my father was a journalist. He was um, correspondent for the Sunday Times, um, covering Spain and during Franco and then later Solidarity um, in Poland. So I grew up to the clackety-clack of typewriters in the background. Did you grow up traveling around Europe as well? Or? No, he had a funny job because he was foreign correspondent, but um, we all lived at home and so did he. And in those days, he would just like disappear for a couple of weeks and go off to Spain or to, to, um, to Poland. And sometimes for a month, I must say, I wasn't very conscious of him being away too much. Um, and the rest of the time, he's in the office and, and write columns and what have you. So I was, I'm being very familiar with what journalism is because I was surrounded. My mother's a food writer as well. So, However, I had no intention. I studied physics and then did a master's in history and philosophy. And uh, I was, I don't know, I wanted to do something like, you know, science related. Um, but then I came out of university into this post-Thatcher depression that went on for four years and I ended up becoming an economic refugee. I just fled and ended up in Tokyo uh, for two years. And there uh, I got a job as a technical writer. And if you're living in Japan at the end of, you know, it's, it's the end of its uh, heyday, just before it, it collapsed completely, um, the three, th three jobs you could have was work for a bank, teach English, or write. And while I was there, I just started writing articles for the... Um, Tokyo Times for fun, Japan Times for fun. And then that just sort of one thing led to another. And then I ended up finally leaving Japan and ended up in New York. And I got 
um, job with a crappy press agency that did special advertising reports. And, um, and they sent me off to Eastern Europe to write one about Ukraine. In, so I, I landed in Kiev in early 1993 when there was nothing. I mean, there was no food in the shops. We bought a motorbike with a sidecar for like 150 bucks. And we used to drive around on this bike like looking for bread and cheese and started interviewing people. And then after that, I went up to Moscow in the autumn and walked into the whole Yeltsin bombing the White House with the tanks. And I started freelancing at that point. Um, and I rang up a paper in London and said, look, you don't know me, but I'm a freelance journalist in Moscow and a tank has just driven past my house on the way to the White House. Would you be interested in a story? And I could hear them shouting in the newsroom, you know, we've got someone on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it just took off. Um, and then I, I, I don't know, I got addicted to it because it, it was just wild. The 90s were wild, crazy times. And as a freelancer, there were almost no freelancers. So, you know, I, I thought about taking a job at the Moscow Times and actually Champion, Mark Champion, the editor at the time, made me a part-time editor of the art section. So I did like go in there once a week for about six months. I think Weinstock finally sacked me for being late with my column. But the freelance just took off and um, I just wandered around. So I spent a year in Uzbekistan. I lived in, in Estonia for six months, uh, Warsaw for a couple of months, in Volgograd for four months and just wandered around, got to know the place. Um, and as I say, it was, it was a crazy time. Um, and work-wise, it was just it's a journalistic paradise. It was just like one mad story after another. You take your pick of what you wanted to choose. So how do you stumble onto stories when, say, you're just passing through an area for a few weeks or a few months at a time? Like, say, do, you, do, you, do you have to kind of do work in advance of going somewhere and find people who know who are connected? Or do you literally just show up at a bar and kind of start buying people drinks until they spill the beans on something? Like, how does it actually work? Um... It's a tradecraft thing, isn't it? I don't know. I mean, th th there's a. I mean, I, I stopped chasing individual stories um, a while ago. But I mean, in in the early days, um, yeah, you had to pitch and sell each individual story. And and what you did is you had a, a bag of clients. So, as I say, I, I was never really that interested in getting a staff job, um, partly because the freelance was going so well. Uh, and the the joy of the freelance was that you had a, a, a group, um, a sort of spectrum of clients. So I always enjoyed the business because for me, the whole transformation thing was about business, creating a system where people could work. Um, but then you have newspapers as well. And they have the classic, you know, fun feature stuff um, and politics and Yeltsin drunk stories. And at the same time, I was also a stringer for the music and fashion magazine. And I also take pictures. And so I would do lots of photo-led stories about young people, youth culture, spend a lot of time in nightclubs and raves in, in Moscow in the early 90s. And then you'd make this package of stories and stuff would just come to you. So when there was a crisis, you'd do lots of newspaper stuff. And when it was calm, you'd do lots of business stuff. And the parties were going on constantly throughout anyway, so you could fill your weekends with that whenever anyone was doing anything exciting. And it's that thing of being, just talking to people. Uh, stories would fall in your lap. And I don't know, I mean, if you spent any time in Moscow in the 90s, if you went to the uh, the beer garden in Scandinavia restaurants, just off the Pushkinskaya, then most of the bankers and um, business people would be in that garden at lunchtime. And it's like, it's a village. Moscow's a village. And you just sit there and gossip. And things would just fall in your lap. You'd hear the fact, 
I broke the story that Deutsche Bank bought UFG, um, which belongs to Charlie Ryan, because I was having a beer with the head of investment banking, uh, who I know, uh, who was in the garden. And then the, the fashion culture people, they're always doing things. So um, they would tell you stories about events or, I don't know, fashion shows or raves or whatever. And they, these things was... So I ended up going to Kazan Tip, the first Kazan Tip, which if you know what that is, it's all the Moscow DJs went down to um, Lenina on the, in the Sea of Azov. And there's a disused nuclear power station. And they organized a massive rave. 10,000 people turned up in this disused power station. <laughs> and I, I sold that story to the Evening Standard. It gave me a double-page spread. And we were there when the 98 crisis happened. And the headline was, forget the ruble, the rave's gone nuclear. Uh, and they just loved it. You know, there's all these people, uh, you know, these Ukrainian girls from Sarafopol and all these Moscow DJs and... Um, so it's stuff like that. So you ended up having all these, these legendary stories. But I don't know. I, d I did six months um, running the, the Guardian Bureau in Berlin when I first came here. And I found that much more difficult in so much as the story is much slower moving. But, uh, you know, again, there's the agenda stuff. I mean, when I was first arrived in Berlin, Berlusconi called a German MEP a Nazi. And so everyone went crazy. And that story ran on for two weeks. So there's a lot of gender stuff um, and, you know, culture stuff, nostalgia, the uh, reminiscing over the, the former East Berlin uh, became a story. And then you go out and find whoever, pop stars or whatever, and interview them. What amazes me is people are always like quite happy to, to talk to journalists. I mean, if you ring them up and say, Look, please give up half an hour of your time to talk to me, they're always willingly do it. And um, then you just get them to tell you the, the story. The trick is to have a nose for what makes a good story. And how did you go from doing that freelancing work and going to abandoned nuclear power plants that are holding raves to co-founding BNE and Telenews and, and doing this, this, you know, assiduously economic and financial reporting? Yeah, that's... Um I mean, the industry's changing. Uh, and like I said, when I was in the 90s in, in Moscow, um, there were no other freelancers and it was a massive story with the whole Yeltsin, fall of the Soviet Union, all the cliches, and then the, the rise of the oligarchs. And one story I kept being asked to do over and over again were like chicks who like to shop, which was all... I went to, to um, the Christian Dior shop and the guy was explaining to me, he says like, yeah, but we only have two stocking sizes. I'm like, what do you mean? He says, size six and size 12. I'm like, how come? How, what? And he said, yeah, because either the, girl, the people who shop here are either the wives or the girlfriends. And that's the difference in their stocking sizes. But, you know, it, it started to die down and, and things changed dramatically when Putin came in because that brought stability and the economy started to grow at an incredible pace. And... People's lives transformed. My friends, you know, all went from eking out existence on 50 bucks a month to actually setting up companies and flourishing, having families. And we all got older at the same age. I think, you know, my friends and, and myself in Russia, when, when I came, we were all our irresponsible teenagers, which was the 90s. But then come the noughties, you know, we were all moving into our 30s. And Russia as a mentality, as, a, as if you would imagine it as a person, was the same thing. It was starting to settle down, go to work. And at the same time, the, the press um, is in crisis, that people are losing money. Everybody is getting into more and more trouble. And the, the work is drying up, that the, the freelance rates have been falling. 
And there were more freelancers, more competition. But at the same time, what people are paying you, just the bottom's fallen out of it. It became more and more difficult to make a living. For example, when I was at the Guardian in Berlin, I mean, they, they sent me um, a correspondent eventually, Luke Harding of all people. And then the editor rang me and said, like, we'd like to put you on retainer for £250 a month. Uh, and we want you to, in secret, pitch against him, like to pitch your own ideas without coordinating with him. And I think the idea was just to hold a sort of fire under him. But for me, you know, at that point, I was married with a mortgage and three kids. Uh, and to be offered a retainer of £250 uh, and then to pitch against the correspondent, who's obviously going to get most of the obvious stories, was, you know, a rubbish deal. And if you look at what's happened in terms of the correspondence in Moscow, in my day in the 90s when I was running the Telegraph Bureau, which I did for three or four years, then there were a full slate of international correspondence on the full expat package. And if you look at it today, they're all young guys, local hires, who are on, they're on a salary, but it's a revolving one-year contract. So it's like gone from super stringer to sort of this super, super stringer. But they're much cheaper and they're expendable. And the attitude, I mean, as a job, it's just not become interesting. So having said all of that, on the other side, you had this 300 million people markets with a $2 trillion stock market that was making people fantastic returns. I mean, in the middle of the 90s, uh, noughties, market was returning 30, 40, 50% a year. And I was looking at that, and I'd always been interested in business. Uh, and so Russia really seemed to be coming into its own. And I was thinking, if you can set up a fishing magazine, then surely you can set up a magazine that covers 300 million people in a $2 trillion stock market, because there's no dedicated magazine. And at the same time, um, publication I was stringing for the Business Central Europe, which belongs to the Economist Group, got closed down in 2000. And I was like, that's crazy. This is exactly the time to be opening a magazine like that. And that was what pushed me over the edge, I think, was because was BCE stopped working. And it was actually doing exactly what it should be doing. That we were like, and the number of publications that you could write for were very limited. Um, and their appetite was limited. So we just like, let's set it up ourselves. And the original idea was to do a Russia magazine, but it very quickly became obvious that we had to do the whole former Soviet Union because of the amount of inter-country investment. Russia was a huge investor into Ukraine, and that was a big business, and then other people were coming in. So in 2006, I raised a bit of money, got together all my freelance friends, of which I had many, and we went into business, and it took off. Um, we were in profit within six months. And we had Interfax and Reed come and talk about buying us after a year. And then 2008 happened. And then we went into crisis and we're in crisis pretty much ever since. But it continues to grow. We've now got 30, 40 people working for us in 30 countries. We took over Newspace last year, which is an energy publication, which is global. So we now cover energy markets around the world. We've been expanding into Africa which is probably where we're going to go next and do a BNA, Business New Africa. And there's, a, there's enough of a demand for it. I mean, the, the trick with the press these days is to sell subscriptions because there's no advertising at all. And uh, we used to have, when we set BNA up, you know, 80% of our income was advertising. Today it's about 3%. And if you can crack that subscription nut, then you can work, survive. But it's a winner-takes-all, like the FT is taking all the money in the newspaper world. Um, but it also works on the niche players. 
And if you dominate your niche, then you can get enough people to pay for it to make it work, which we've managed happily to do it after 14 years of hard work. What advice would you have for people that are, because I know, I know some of the people that listen to this podcast are, you know, in school or, or they're, they're in journalism school or they're in maybe just college or something like that, or they're just sort of Russia area people that are thinking about, you know, job opportunities in the field. And unless they're going to go into academia, journalism might be one appealing kind of track. What would be your advice for people like that? I would say definitely do it. The skill set that comes with journalism is extremely useful and you can use it in any job that is worth learning how to do it simply. I mean, the whole process, I mean, the three elements of, of putting a story together. The first one is to have the idea. That's the hard part. The second one is to gather the information. And the last bit is to write. And Although everyone focuses on the writing, it's actually, I find, the easiest bit. George Orwell said it best. He said, when you write what you want to say as clearly and succinctly as possible, then that's your style. And that released me from the, the worry about, you know, um, is this good? Is this well written? You know, as I say, I studied physics, so I, I had no idea. As for a career, I mean, the, the staff jobs pretty much disappeared. I mean, the, there's not that many staff jobs. People are sort of allergic to it, which means the only people who are really hiring are Reuters and Bloomberg. And you can make a very nice job at Bloomberg in terms of the pay and conditions. But the options, I think, other than that, is getting harder and harder. Having said that, with the whole online revolution, writing skills, presentation skills are at a high demand. So I think the nature of journalism is changing and that you won't necessarily look at a newspaper or a magazine to go and work for, where the competition's fierce to get those jobs. Um, but there's plenty of stuff online where those skills are needed and you can do... I mean, the whole thing with, with YouTube and um, TikTok and blogging, that you can actually earn an income from good writing which you earn simply through the subscriptions that you generate yourself. You become a self-publisher in that sense. But um, yeah, as a career, I don't know if I'd actually, journal, traditional journalism, I don't know if I'd actually recommend it because it, it's, it's, as I say, the profession's dying and it's still trying to work out how to make money uh, enough to pay people. Uh, and I just watched as a freelancer over that last 10-year period, the, the money just dropped off and the conditions people were offering you got worse and worse to the point where The Guardian was ringing me up and saying, would you give us your best articles for nothing? And I was like, why would I do that? And they said, to get access to our 4 million readers. And I was like, keep your readers, you know. <laughs> I need to get paid <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah, that's quite an offer. I have you, I wanted to ask you how you would assess Western sanctions against Russia, because it doesn't seem like they have achieved the aim of changing Russian policy, but I suppose it has changed the way Russia does certain things. And so what, what is your view? The West is fundamentally conflicted. The trouble with Russia is it's a huge, enormous country that sits on the border 
Well, it's in Europe, isn't it? I mean, the, the European border runs to the Ural Mountains, but it's too big to integrate into the rest of... There, there was, I mean, apparently Putin asked Borosov if Russia could eventually join the European Union. And he said, no, that's not, that's not possible. Simply because you would just swamp all the European institutions by your size. Because the country's bigger by half than just by Germany. So what to do about Russia? And at the same time, it's proven to be an enormous market. So everyone, you know, on the one side, they're sending out oil and gas. On the other side, it's a massive consumer market that significantly affects all the businesses in Europe who want to export there. And so on the one hand, Europe is conflicted because they want the business and the money. And on the other hand, they have this problem with Russia's aggressiveness. And consequently, the sanctions that were imposed, if you remember the original round in 2014, they were pretty symbolic. They were against individuals, generals who organized uh, the referendum, quote unquote, didn't really mean anything. It was only later when the Americans came in, involved that they started to put sanctions on bonds and assets and banks and what have you, which are pretty painful. But they're counterproductive because... You know, you, you you can't bully a country like Russia. All it's done is made it dig in its heels. And the upshot of that, the consequences of these sanctions have been enormous. I mean, Putin warned in his famous Munich 2007 speech that, you know, they'd been promised various things, no expansion of NATO being the main one. And the, those promises have been reneged on. And uh, he warned, unless they have some sort of cooperative deal, they want to be friends, then, then Russia would react. And it did. In 2012, he, he, he started modernizing the army. And then 2014, he annexed Crimea. And then one of the readings you can put on, within that context on what's going on in Belarus at the moment is that some sort of union state deal will be done specifically that will end up with a base, a military base, on the Belarusian-Polish border which is a pushback against NATO's expansion. This is like Russia moving out again for the first time. And I actually think there's a large chunk of truth to that, and we'll probably see that happen. It's become aggressive, but one point I do want to make with this talk, I mean, having done Russia now for whatever it is, you know, nigh on 25 years or more, is that we look at Russia and its values are compared to those of London, New York, Brussels today. And of course, it falls down on press freedoms, human rights, etc. But my perspective, and what we do at BNE is put things into this perspective, is we, we compare someone like Russia in 1993, where it was a basket case, where it was completely collapsed, where the people were destitute and desperate, to Russia today which is more or less a normal country with some big problems. You know, incomes are on a par with Europe on a PPP term, and on an absolute basis, they're actually not that far off. And you go to Moscow, it's absolutely the same, if not ahead. And the progress has been phenomenal. And this is the problem I think Putin's grappling with, is trying to build a modern country. I mean, you also have to say that within the CIS, that Russia is by far the most prosperous and best organized of the countries who remain within the CIS. Because the most successful strategy of any of these transition countries has been to join the EU. And all those countries that were able to join the EU from the Warsaw Bloc have been a phenomenal success story. But then everyone east of Ukraine has not been able to join and will not be able to join. And so that leaves them with these crappy institutions and then the Russian influence comes into play and they've been undermining things. 
And the Europeans also have excluded Russia. They tried to buy into Opal, uh, the car maker. They tried to buy into Airbus and were blocked by the West. And they wanted those technologies, those tie-ups, to fix their own sectors. And they were blocked by the West. I mean, the West has made some horrible policy mistakes and been very exclusive uh, when it comes to cooperating with Russia. And we've just got ourselves into a bad situation. And I don't think it's going to get any better until Putin leaves. But then after Putin, I think the chances of getting someone less capable than him, less subtle, more aggressive, is actually pretty high. And so things could actually get worse. Against that, you've got the young generation in Russia who are Europeanized, integrate, travel, speak English, aspire to the same sort of things that we do, increasingly the values, which will work against that. But uh, I don't think it's clear which way it's going to go. That's my interview with Ben Aris, the editor-in-chief of BNE IntelliNews. Check the description of this podcast episode for hyperlinks to his Twitter account and to BNE's website, where you can find all the business, news, and geopolitical reporting you ever wanted. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider visiting patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock. I've now got two membership tiers, as they're called. You can get for you can get stickers for 10 bucks a month, or if you shell out $20 a month, oh my goodness, you get a coffee mug. And they both have the podcast artwork printed on them so it's customized thank you to everybody already pitching in and I'm happy to get feedback if you ever have a comment about the show or a question or a suggestion as always thanks for listening until next time